Hey, Katie. Hey. Hey, Cassie. Do you want to tell people about our podcast? Oh my gosh. I've been waiting all day to tell people about our podcast. What's it called? It's called Married to Murder. What's it about? It's couples who murder each other or murder together. Oh my God. That sounds so awesome. Where can you listen to it? iTunes or anywhere podcasts are available. Anywhere a podcast is available? Anywhere. Get out. I can't wait to go listen myself. Well, hurry up. I'll time you. Okay. Between February and May of 1946, four couples were brutally attacked and five people killed by a still unidentified serial killer in the Texarkana area. One survivor described her attacker as wearing a white mask with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth. The story of the phantom killer and the fear he instilled in the Texarkana community inspired the 1976 film The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is screened in Spring Lake Park in Texarkana every year near Halloween. This is based on a true crime. everyone and welcome to episode 13 lucky number 13 of based on a true crime my name is chelsea and i love true crime and my name is david and i love horror movies and we are back from our very short vacation uh well five day vacation but more than a week for the podcast so sorry you guys but we had a ton of fun in New Orleans, walked until I got blisters and popped them and grew blisters under my blisters. But besides that, it was pretty fun. Yeah, no ghost, sadly. Well, there was a ghost in that trash can, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, David does believe he saw a ghost in a trash can. I think it was probably just a sorority girl vomit, but... Well, there was a sorority girl vomiting in the trash can. Oh, there was. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, we did do some fun themed events. We went on a ghost tour and we went to the Museum of Death, which was awesome. We bought a c- ton of cool stuff, including a, a couple extra items that you may be seeing in an upcoming giveaway. And I finally got my hands on some uh, true crime trading cards that I was very excited about. A total bargain at $10 a pack. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> but they've been out of print since the 90s, so I was still really excited. Yeah, and the museum itself, you know, going in, I was a little worried that maybe it would be a little too grueling. But then I saw the Pogo the Clown painting. Uh. Yes. <laughs> oh, it was my favorite part was all of the kind of murder bilia they had. They had this insane letter that Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, wrote to someone outside of jail about how to like kill her overweight coworker by eating a meatball sub in front of her and he like drew out instructions including these little meatballs with little like smiling faces on them it was bizarre wait did you just invent the word murderbilia no you've never heard the term murderbilia no i forgot true crime's not your thing no there it's called murderbilia but yeah so that was really cool they had really neat kind of old like autopsy equipment that was fun they had some stuff that's not up my alley i'm not really into like gruesome car accident pictures so i kind of let my eyes wander over that onto more appealing things but it was really neat so shout out to 
the Museum of Death in New Orleans. And I'm really excited to hopefully one day get to the Museum of Death in LA because it's supposed to be a lot bigger. Yep. Um, a lot more murdery. <laughs> or deathy. I don't know. Yes. I keep wanting to call it the Museum of Murder. Sorry. There's probably another one that's called that. Well, if not, maybe we should open one. But that's like, I anyway, long. <laughs> 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 that's like a horror movie, the Museum of Murder. Yeah. But yes, Nola. Awesome. Highly recommend it. We oh, ate all the yeah. beignets. Oh, we also saw some, um, we went to the zombie museum, which also had some tie-ins to our Serpent the Rainbow Oh, episode. yes. We need to post the pictures. Yeah. Uh, we went to the Voodoo Museum and that was really neat. We went to... Yeah, not the zombie <laughs> museum. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologize. Um, went to Marie Laveau's Voodoo Shop. And we're just rambling. And also, okay. we have a really long introduction planned. So if All you right. didn't like hearing us talk about New Orleans for that couple minutes, um, you might want to fast forward. But before you do, you should take note of this week's promo that we played uh, before this episode. It's for Married to Murder. This is a really great podcast. Um, fairly new. They're up to, I think, 11 episodes uh, hosted by Gussie and Katie. And Gussie is originally from St. Louis which is our previous hometown. So the podcast is Married to Murder, and it's not a podcast about David's life being married to a true crime addict. (laughs) Um, It is about couples who kill either each other or who kill together. So I was going to say, is that a single episode? (laughs) Wait, no, that's, they don't murder each other. No, Um, it's, it's really interesting. I've always been really fascinated with those sorts of cases thinking about you know why would someone kill the person that they're supposed to kind of love more than anyone else in the world or also how do two people find each other and then murder people together um it's just kind of crazy but they've had some some really good ones they had an episode on brad bishop the family annihilator they talked about uh, scott and Lacey peterson one of their episodes which probably most of you remember when that completely dominated the news um but they are awesome and they give us a really really great shout out in their episode so go check them out um and thank you gussie and katie yeah thanks so much and uh also we have want to say thank you to our new reviews on apple Podcasts, aka itunes uh from the word and january jane 226 yes thank you guys so much for reviewing and um everyone please keep the reviews coming if you like what you hear i also wanted to do another quick sorry we were just piling on the shout outs but we've been away for a while so um after our episode our last full episode which was on murder by numbers slash the leopold and Loeb case i posted on social media asking for uh some people to tell us what their perfect crime would be and we got a few responses uh one was from the murder and such podcast and their perfect crime was to steal candy because no one would expect a diabetic Ooh, ah. diabolical more <laughs> like um and the other one was from the guilty podcast on twitter and he said that he would time travel back more than 100 years commit the crime and then come back to the present Ooh, interesting which is quite ingenious i can't imagine how confusing that dna evidence would be if they randomly got a match to someone who wasn't born for like 70 years after the crime took place um and then uh one more thing i guess this would be kind of a addendum to our previous episode on jaws 
So in case you haven't seen that, we talked about the 1916 shark attacks in New Jersey that kind of inspired the Jaws movie. And uh, Mary Virginia Avery pointed out on our Facebook, actually, that sharks are pretty rad. And, you know, we should be careful about stirring fear in people about sharks. And we absolutely agree 100%, you know, even as someone who grew up at the shore and was definitely scared of sharks. Sharks don't hunt people. We are not their natural prey. We also don't live in the ocean and they do. (laughs) So, you know, be cautious when you're swimming. If that's what you're into, you're more likely to be stung by a jellyfish than attacked by a shark. And, you know, just remember sharks attack people because we look like things that they eat like seals. We are not what they eat. So don't take out your aggression on sharks. Sharks are rad. Sharks are rad. Yes. Yep. All right. So we also wanted to give a shout out to the correct guesses for this episode i suppose um to on instagram uh this dot is dot elston thank you and on twitter lauren lee who is at conceptual alice thanks so much and also on facebook uh brenda who guessed the movie and andrea who guessed the killer and the case so thank you everyone for your participation Yes, thank you everyone, and hopefully those of you who fast-forwarded through all that are back with us, because I did want to just give a quick warning. So the case we're doing is the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, aka The Phantom Killer, which became the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and there are a lot of kind of graphic details available for this case, as I noticed while doing research, and we haven't really cut any of those out or I haven't cut any of those out so you know if it is too much especially in light of the horrific mass casualty incident that happened earlier this week honestly it kind of felt a little much when I was doing the research but I powered through and if you don't feel like powering through I absolutely don't blame you so on that note let's get started On Friday, February 22nd of 1946, Jimmy Hollis, who was 24, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, who was 19, were on their way home from a date seeing House of Dracula starring John Carradine when they decided that they weren't ready to finish the night up quite yet. Jimmy drove the pair to a secluded spot about 50 feet off of Richmond Road at the edge of town, which served as a lover's lane. Jimmy had borrowed the family's Plymouth and was supposed to have it home by midnight, but had apparently decided to risk his father's wrath to steal away a few more quiet moments with his girlfriend, since the pair didn't arrive at the scene until about 11.45 p.m. It was around midnight when a man approached the driver's side of the car with a flashlight and shone through the window into Jimmy Hollis's face, and it blinded him. At first, Jimmy was confused, and he told the man, quote, "'Fellow, you've got me mixed up with someone else. You got the wrong man.'" The man ordered him out of the car at gunpoint, saying that he didn't want to kill him, as long as Jimmy did what he said. So Jimmy exited the car. Next, the man ordered Jimmy to remove his pants, saying, quote, take off your goddamn britches. I kind of wonder while I was researching this. I didn't get a chance to look into it, but was britches actually what people called them in the 40s? Yeah, britches. Britches? I thought that was like... In colonial times. No, my parents said britches. Oh, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) Take off your britches. Wait, (laughs) put on your britches. (laughs) 
At first, he refused, thinking it must be some kind of joke. Mary Jean encouraged him to obey their attacker, and he repeated his threat to kill Jimmy if he didn't remove his pants. Jimmy complied, and after he moved his pants, the man pistol-whipped him, cracking his skull. Mary Jean reported that the sound was so loud, she thought he had been shot. The man continued to beat and kick Jimmy until he seemed to think the boy was dead. Then he turned his attention to Mary Jean. She offered him the wallet from Jimmy's pants, but said that he had no money in it. He asked if she had a purse, and when she said she didn't, he called her a liar, knocked her to the ground, and hit her with something that felt like an iron pipe. Then he told her to run. When she got up and started running towards a ditch, he told her to run towards the road instead. Mary Jean heard Jimmy moaning, and the man began to stomp on him again. She made it to where they had parked and saw an older car parked up the street facing their vehicle. But when she checked for any occupants that might be able to help her, it was empty. That's when the man overtook her. He asked her why she ran away, and when she said that he had told her to run, he called her a liar again. He knocked her to the ground and sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun. She told him to go ahead and kill her, but instead he got up and quickly left. It's possible that he left because he saw a car approaching down the road. When Mary Jean saw the opportunity, she got up and ran, screaming to the first house she could find, half a mile away. The whole time, she thought that she was being chased. The homeowners notified the authorities, and Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers were sent to the scene, where they found Jimmy Hollis still alive. His pants were 100 yards away from the scene of the attack, and there was no trace of the man who attacked them. Mary Jean received stitches for her head wounds, and Jimmy was hospitalized for several days following the attack, but both survived, and both would end up being the only two survivors who caught any sort of glimpse of the man who would go on to be known as the Phantom Killer. Jimmy, who was initially blinded by the flashlight, described the attacker as a deeply tanned white man who was about six feet tall and seemed like he may be a farmer. Mary Jean, on the other hand, described him as a six-foot-tall, light-skinned black man wearing the now-infamous white mask with holes cut out for the eyes and mouth. However, uh, her assumption of his race was based on his pronunciation rather than being able to clearly see him. After all, it was dark out and both she and Jimmy had sustained head wounds. Following the attack, Mary Jean was repeatedly accused by police officers and by the Texas Rangers of knowing who her attacker was. They said that they considered the attack on Mary Jean and Jimmy Hollis to be an isolated incident that did not pose any risk to Texarkana residents. That is, until the first double murder occurred just 28 days later. Uh, Yeah, that was a bad bad move on their part. Yep. I guess they should have believed the victims. (laughs) Well, even then, I don't think they had any way to predict or to at least know that it wasn't an isolated incident right they might have realized that it was a complete stranger which makes it more likely to not be an isolated incident because it's not targeted but i think that at the time it was a a pretty peaceful town and that kind of thing just didn't really happen yeah it was wearing a creepy horror movie villain mask though (laughs) (laughs) you know she is the only person that saw that mask they're the only two that saw the attacker at all and Jimmy Hollis did not see any sort of mask. It's become so iconic now, but I mean, who knows? He might have not been wearing one. Yeah. Oh, know. yeah. Good point. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So on the morning of Sunday, March 24th, a truck driver driving down Highway 67 in Bowie County saw a 1941 Oldsmobile parked on a lover's lane known as Rich Road just off the highway. It was between 8.30 and 9 a.m. The driver noticed a man behind the wheel and assumed that he was sleeping. Thinking that it would be safer for the man to move to a motel, the driver pulled over and approached the car to wake him up. 
Instead, the unsuspecting driver happened upon a gruesome crime scene. Inside the car were the murdered bodies of 29-year-old Richard L. Griffin and his girlfriend, 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore. Both had been shot once in the back of the head, and Richard had been shot an additional two times while inside the car. Richard was found kneeling in the front seat of the car with his head resting on his hands, while Polly Ann was face down, lying across the back seat. Her purse was next to her, and Richard's pockets were turned inside out. Although much of the evidence outside of the vehicle was washed away by rain that took place overnight, police were able to determine that Polly Ann had been killed outside of the vehicle. Arkansas State Trooper Max Tackett would write in the report that Polly Ann had been killed in front of the car on a blanket the killer had taken from the car, and then her body was placed back inside of the car. Despite the rain, there was some blood, there were drag marks, and faint footprints around the vehicle. It's not known for certain whether Polly Ann was sexually assaulted because her body was picked up before an examination was conducted. Ballistics tests were conducted and proved that the couple had been killed with a 32 caliber Colt, which was more likely a semi-automatic. So Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore had last been seen alive the previous night. The two had gotten dinner with Richard's sister and her boyfriend, and they were at a cafe on Highway 67 West at around 10 p.m. After the call came in about the double murder, hot on the heels of the attack on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry, Sheriff Presley immediately launched a citywide investigation, which included the Texarkana, Texas and Texarkana, Arkansas City Police, the Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments, and the FBI, in addition to the Bowie County Sheriff's Department. The Texas Department of Public Safety included the uh, famous Texas Rangers, and they were called in by that Monday. The first to arrive was Jimmy Greer, who came in around 9 p.m. Greer, Presley, and the other investigators combed the scene for clues, but they didn't have much to go on. Samples of bloody sand from the ground in front of the car and bloody clothes Richard and Polly Ann were wearing were sent to the Department of Public Safety's labs to test for the presence of any blood that might have come from a third party. Police interviewed 200 suspects, including three who had bloody clothes on, but all were eventually released. The police released a statement to the media asking for information from the public, with the caveat that this information should be firsthand to avoid being sent down a, quote, blind alley. Presley and Chief of Police Jack Runnels also offered a $500 reward for new information. They were still hard at work trying to solve this double murder when, three weeks later, a second double murder occurred. At around 6.30 in the morning on Sunday, April 14th, a family driving down a road in Texarkana's Spring Lake Park came upon the body of 16-year-old high school senior Paul Martin. He had been shot four times, uh, once through the nose, once between his ribs from behind, once in his right hand, and then finally through the back of his neck. Blood was also found on the opposite side of the road, leading investigators to believe that he had been running away when he was gunned down, and his car was found empty more than a mile down the road. As word of his murder spread, both police and the public began piecing together his previous evening. Paul had last been seen at the VFW Hall downtown, where a dinner and dance had been taking place on Saturday. The music that evening was provided by the Rhythmeries, which is an awesome name for a band. Yeah, no kidding. Yes. Uh, so they're a big band style group consisting of mostly high schoolers. And Paul's friend Betty Jo Booker played alto sax for the group. They were not a romantic couple. 
but they had been friends since kindergarten. And Paul had arranged to give Betty Jo a ride after the dance to a friend's slumber party. Betty Jo told her friends that she actually didn't really want to go with Paul, but she felt obligated because he was an old friend and he was um, kind of just in town temporarily because he had moved to Kilgore, Texas two years prior. Kilgore. (laughs) Yeah, that's a murder name. That is a murder name. That's like two murder names in one. So the pair were last seen leaving the dance together at around 1 a.m., but Betty Jo never made it to the slumber party. So volunteer search teams were organized to search the park for Betty Jo. At around 1130, her body was found in a grove of trees nearly two miles from Paul's body. She was fully clothed and lying on her back. She had been shot twice, once in the chest, and once through her left cheek. There are conflicting reports about whether or not she was raped, but it was clear from examining their bodies that both of them had put up a fight due to their defensive wounds. The connections between the two double murders were obvious. The victims were both young couples, killed with the same 32 caliber Colt, late on a Saturday night while out in their cars. It was after the second double murder that Captain Manuel T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez of the Texas Rangers was brought in. I think you need to call me Lone Wolf from now on. All right. He was the force's first captain of Spanish heritage and was a living legend at the time. He took charge of uh, PR for the department, giving numerous radio and newspaper interviews about the case. One potential for a break in the case was the fact that Betty Jo Booker's alto saxophone was never found, even though she should have had it with her after playing at the dance. Police contacted a number of pawn shops and music dealers with the make and serial number of the instrument, but nothing came of it. The saxophone would eventually be discovered in some brush six months later by men repairing a fence just 140 steps from where Betty Jo's body had been found. It seems crazy that they would not have found it at the time especially with a search party like that yeah 140 steps that's so close yeah i don't know yeah i mean they could find the leopold and Loeb puke oh wait that was in the movie <laughs> that was the uh movie. The, the glasses, glasses. <laughs> yeah i just i imagine that case that the glasses were like just tucked under the body yeah they're <laughs> just like sitting in his hand yeah hey, prob- right glasses right hey. here yeah well by tuesday after the second double murder the reward for information had been increased to thanks to individual contributions around town. The town also instituted a voluntary midnight curfew. Hardware stores sold out of guns, ammunition, and other home security measures. A town which had previously left their doors unlocked started installing screen door braces and Venetian blinds. It was also after the second killing that Calvin Sutton, the managing editor of the Texarkana Gazette, started calling the perpetrator, quote, the Phantom. I want that to be my nickname, too. The, The Phantom Lone Wolf. Ooh, I yeah. like it. I'd be so cool. Yeah, we would. Yep. You are cool. <laughs> oh, nice save there. Yeah. Uh, so there were many rumors which circulated the small town about potential suspects. One was that Paul and Betty Jo knew their killer and had given him a ride. And people believe this because where their car ended up being found and where the bodies were found in Spring Lake Park was quite far off the path that they would have taken if he were taking her to the slumber party so they thought maybe they had given a ride to this person and then he pulled out a gun and ordered them to drive to a more secluded area i feel like at that point people were very nervous and i don't think there was any reason for a young couple to decide to pull off into a secluded area to neck three weeks after a couple was killed doing that Mm, Um, interesting So there were also rumors that a minister had turned in his son for the killing. 
There were rumors that the killer had turned himself in, and there were even rumors about additional double murders taking place. Gonzalez frequently complained about these rumors due to the manpower required from the police to track down you know, their route and see if there actually is any truth to it or any potential leads from it. Um, and also due to injustice, because there were a lot of people that were being falsely accused of being the phantom. Uh, eventually, Gonzalez put out a statement that the newspapers would not be printing any rumors, that they would only be printing official information about the case. So the only official information would be coming either from the newspapers or directly from the police. So by Thursday, April 25th, the reward for information in the case had reached more than $6,400. The town was on edge and teenage vigilantes, many of whom were classmates of the victims, had taken to patrolling the streets with firearms. Oh, that yep. sounds dangerous. Yeah. Teens with guns. Ooh. It's like worse than regular teens. Yep. Um, so some of them would even park their cars on lovers' lanes you know, waiting to try to lure the phantom out. Um, But the phantom did not fall for these traps. Instead, they would frequently almost shoot at the cops who were patrolling the area and came to basically tell the teens to uh, skedaddle or else the phantom was going to get them. Good thing this was April, not like October. (laughs) Ooh, extra spooky. Yeah. Um, Well, no, I was just thinking like costume people that would be shooting at everybody. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. So the majority of Texarkana residents, on the other hand, were quite content to remain safely indoors and locked up at night. On Friday, May 3rd, 37-year-old farmer Virgil Starks was sitting in the living room of his ranch-style farmhouse, 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He was listening to a weekly radio show while his wife, 36-year-old Katie Starks, was laying down in the bedroom. Katie heard something in the yard and asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, she heard the sound of glass breaking. Thinking Virgil had perhaps dropped something, Katie entered the living room to find Virgil slumped over, bleeding in the chair. She ran to him, but he was already dead. He had been shot twice in the back of his head from a window just three feet from his chair. Katie ran to the wall crank phone to call the police, but before she could contact anyone, she was shot twice from the same window. The first shot entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear, while the other went in her lower jaw, splintering several of her teeth before lodging under her tongue. <sighs> yes, that that's the kind of thing that I have nightmares about. Yeah. Anything tooth related. I just went to the dentist today. Oh. Yep. Got all Tooths. No. Yeah. Although she had initially fallen to her knees, she was able to get back on her feet. She could hear the killer tearing at the screen in the back porch and trying to get into the house, all the while making inhuman noises. At first, Katie tried to get the pistol from their living room, but she couldn't see through the blood covering her face. The killer made his way onto the back porch and was trying to climb in through the kitchen window. Katie made a run for it, managing to exit the house through the front door while leaving behind a river of blood and teeth. She crossed the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house, but no one was home. She ran another 50 yards to A.V. Pratter's house. When he approached her, she said, Virgil's dead, and collapsed. Another neighbor... I like that intonation. Virgil's dead! (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure she said it just like that. (laughs) Virgil's dead. Another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, drove Katie to the hospital with the Pratters and their baby. When they got there, Katie gave Elmer Taylor one of her teeth that had a gold filling in it. Despite the blood loss, Katie never lost consciousness or went into shock. How cool is she? Yeah, she's badass. I love that she paid for the ride with one of her own teeth. I'm going to pay for my Uber from now on. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. They fill you with the gold filling. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. No, she like I I was blown away reading about her. It's kind of hard to imagine myself being that uh, level-headed and just a survivor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah. So Katie Starks was questioned twice at the hospital, but never got a good look at their attacker since he shot from the outside of their house through the closed window. She was able to discount rumors being spread that Virgil had hurt a car outside their house several nights in a row before the killing or that he was afraid of being killed. Thanks to Katie's badassery, as you had said, in surviving the attack, the police were able to get to the scene very quickly, to the point where they canvassed the scene with guns drawn in case the killer was still afoot. There were two bullet holes in the window, leading police to believe that the gun was a semi-automatic, since both Virgil and Katie had been hit with two bullets in quick succession. However, the caliber of this weapon was different from the previous two attacks. It was a 22 instead of a 32 caliber. The police also found bloody handprints and muddy boot prints throughout the house. It appeared that the killer had dipped his hands in Virgil's blood after entering the house, and the boot prints that led out of the house followed the path which Katie had taken, but stopped at the highway, leading police to believe that he had left the scene in a car. The final clue from the crime scene was a flashlight, which was found in a hedge under the window which Virgil was shot from. The flashlight was distinct, with a black handle and red on the bottom and the top. On May 29th, the Texarkana Gazette printed a color photo of the flashlight on its front page, hoping that someone would recognize it, but no one did. The town sank deeper into fear. Residents began to booby trap their doors with pans, vases, and flower pots that were filled with loose nails and silverware. It became normal to keep loaded guns in every room of the house and to leave lights on from dusk until dawn. People even purchased guard dogs for their house. Some people believed, or still do believe, that the attack on Virgil and Katie Starks was not committed by the Phantom Killer. The attack did differ from the previous three attacks in a number of ways. The Starks were an older couple, and they were in their house, um, rather than the kind of three younger couples who were attacked in their cars. The pair were also killed using a different caliber gun. However, there were also similarities. Robbery did not seem to be a motive in this case because there was money and jewels in Katie's purse in plain view that were not taken. And, you know, although the Phantom Killer asked for money, it really did not seem to be the motive because he did go on to kill people or beat them to the point of death. The timing of the attack also fit an eerie pattern. So there were four weeks between the first attack on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry and the second attack, but each attack following that second attack occurred at almost precisely three-week intervals and usually on the weekends. Um, So they were always on Friday or Saturday nights. Jimmy Hollis also released a statement saying that he thought the attacks were related. And he said, quote, Right after it happened, I told the deputy sheriff and the city attorney that that man was dangerous. He is a potential murderer. The next person he gets will be killed. It wasn't long after that when the first two bodies were found out on West 7th Street. I think there are three people alive today who escaped from that man. The woman who is in the hospital now, Mrs. Larry, and I. Interesting. The Tuesday after Virgil Stark's murder, a mobile radio transmitting station and squad of 10 police cars and 20 state police officers were sent to Texarkana from Austin. Sheriff Presley and Chief Runnels issued another plea to the public asking for information about anyone whose locations were unknown on the nights of February 22nd to 23rd, March 22nd to 24th, April 13th to 14th, and May 3rd. The plea read, quote, 
We want every man and woman in these two counties to recall the dates of these murders and also to recall whether or not any person close to them was missing or out of pocket during those nights. Persons who have such information and have been withholding it when they know they should report it are leaving themselves open to possible charges of complicity in the event the Slayer is captured. Make no mistake about the fact that the Slayer will be captured because we will not give up this hunt until he has been captured or killed. All information received will be treated confidentially. We urge you to come in and tell what you know. Don't be hesitant or fear that you are causing an innocent man embarrassment and trouble inasmuch all investigation will be confidential. This is no time to take any chance on information which might lead us to the Slayer. This maniac must be captured. We believe that we are justified in going to any ends to halt this chain of murder. Bear in mind, this killer may strike at anyone. He may strike at persons close to him. For that reason, we believe any person with information that may lead us to the murderer should act in the interest of self-preservation. So that's the kind of thing that probably should have been out there early on, I feel like. Um, yeah. But instead they waited a bit. I feel like yeah. I would have like been like, oh, these two people saw a masked killer. Let's just let's just put a statement out there. Well, I think it took them kind of a while to connect the first attack with the second attack. I think the second and third attack were very obviously connected. But then the fourth attack, there are still people who don't believe that it's connected to the other ones. So Right. And it, it's 1946, so it's a less connected world. It's a small town, right? I guess. I, I, I almost I feel like in a small town that information should kind of travel faster. faster. There are so many rumors flying around. Well, but then it was like, it could have been Harley yeah. Joe Ray or Jimmy... <laughs> Carly Rae Jepsen? <laughs> I don't think she was born yet. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, just like we're talking about, problems with rumors persisted through town, including the same old rumors about the killer being caught and accusations of being the Phantom. Over the weekends, police would be flooded by reports from residents of Prowlers, none of which amounted to anything. Liquor stores began closing early and refused to sell alcohol to anyone who already appeared drunk in order to reduce the workload of the police. Oh no, it's a good thing that didn't happen in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. Well, officers had to drive with their lights on when approaching houses to avoid being mistaken for the Phantom and shot by homeowners. Unfortunately, Captain Gonzalez was not helping to calm the hysteria. When asked in a radio interview what advice he would give to the town residents, he replied, quote, I'd tell them to check the locks and bolts of their doors and get a double-barreled shotgun to take care of any intruder who tried to get in. Yeah, excellent advice. Yeah, that's the way to calm the populace. Uh, well, three weeks passed with no new attack. Then another three weeks passed. And with time, the fear started to pass. June brought with it the best and really only suspect in what became known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Officer Max Tackett, the same officer who wrote the report on the first double murder, noticed that before each of the murders, a car in the area had been reported stolen. Tackett and Deputy Tillman Johnson began looking for previously stolen cars, and on June 28th, they found one of them in a Texarkana parking lot. They staked out the car until a 21-year-old woman, Peggy Swinney, returned to it from an adjacent market. She told the officers that the car belonged to her new husband, Yule Swinney, who was in Atlanta, Texas, selling another stolen car. Many stolen cars, yes. Many stolen cars. With the help of a citizen who was approached by Swinney about purchasing the stolen car, Tackett and Johnson were able to track down Swinney at the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station. Years later, Johnson would say while being interviewed for a documentary that Swinney said to the arresting officers, quote, Hell, I know you don't electrocute people for stealing a car. Which Johnson said was suspicious because no one had mentioned the phantom killing and being executed was not a typical punishment for stealing cars. Yul Swinney had a long rap sheet 
which consisted mostly of theft, including car theft and burglary. But he was also previously charged for assault. There was quite a bit of circumstantial evidence in the case. The car which Peggy was driving had been stolen on the night of the murders of uh, Griffin and Moore. There was a khaki work shirt in the Swinney's hotel room with the name Stark stenciled on the pocket and Yol Swinney had owned a 32 Colt automatic but sold it at a crap game. There is also the fact that Peggy confessed to her husband being the Phantom, even taking cops to the crime scenes and pointing out spots where items and bodies were found. However, Peggy proved to be an unreliable witness and continually changed her story. They tested Yol Swinney's fingerprints against those found at the Booker Martin and Stark's crime scenes, and they were not a match. Investigations also proved that the pair were in San Antonio the night of the Booker Martin double murder. And finally, the police botched an interrogation of Swinney in Little Rock. They accidentally gave him an overdose of sodium pentothal, a.k.a. truth serum, causing him to fall asleep and sleep for hours. (laughs) I... Did not realize that there was a time in our history when that was an okay interrogation technique. Yeah. That's what are we living in? Harry Potter? Yeah. So, Yol Swinney was not charged with the phantom killings due to the fact that this evidence was um, not at all, I guess. Not that it's not convincing, but it's definitely not conclusive. But he was charged with car theft. And due to the fact that he was a serial offender, he was sentenced to life imprisonment at the Texas State Penitentiary. Although Gonzalez was not convinced that Swinney was the killer, the killings in Texarkana did stop after his arrest. That October, the Texas Rangers, who were still present in Texarkana, quietly disbanded and went home. On January 26th of 1977, so 30 years later, uh, Captain Gonzalez was interviewed on the occasion of the release of The Town That Dreaded Sundown. In the interview, he said that he believed that neither the first attack on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry, nor the attack on Virgil and Katie Starks were related to the phantom killings. Really? Yes, really. Mm. He also said that he believed that the killer knew the two boys and two girls that he had killed and that the killer was, quote, a sex maniac of the first order and that many details related to the killing had still never been released to prevent false confessions. And 18 days after he gave this interview, Captain Gonzalez passed away from cancer. Uh, So to this day, the phantom killer has never been identified. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Wow. So that's the story of the Texarkana Moonlight murders and the unknown, uncaught phantom serial killer. I have quite a few discussion points. I really, uh, if not for vacation, this episode might have been twice as long, but I kind of had to limit myself. So I I hope y'all aren't disappointed. I know that people were really excited on the Facebook when we announced the case, but uh, just reading about it, uh, it was really bumming me out. But there was another confession that is kind of frequently talked about when people talk about this case. This was actually a confession that was written in someone's suicide note. Uh, 18-year-old H.B. Duty Tennyson, which I don't want to laugh, but that is the... You should go with Lone Wolf for your nickname instead of Duty. Lone Wolf. Yeah. 
So he committed suicide and left a note saying that you know, he was the phantom killer and couldn't live with himself after like sending investigators on a weird little scavenger hunt like he left a note for them to look in this one place to look in another place to find the actual suicide note but then they also found a second note that said to disregard the first note and he was just you know trying to maybe think of other reasons or telling a a yarn um, and his friend also said that it was not possible for him to have been the phantom killer because he was with him the night of the attack on the starks so it seems very likely that he was not the phantom killer but it is brought up a lot another kind of interesting coincidence i guess uh, maybe coincidence maybe related but shortly after the attacks in texarkana there was a very similar double murder in fort lauderdale florida it was a young couple that were killed in their car which was parked at a secluded area near dania beach and although they were not killed by a colt they were killed by a 32 caliber semi-automatic weapon so these attacks happened in 1946. You might be familiar with these attacks. You might not be, but you are probably definitely familiar with a few more recent attacks that had a very similar uh, modus operandi. Zodiac. Yeah, I was going to say it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Zodiac, this was between 1968 and 1969 in Northern California. And he did pray on couples parked in lovers lanes for his murder weapon it was a nine millimeter handgun rather than that 32 caliber automatic or semi-automatic but i definitely feel like there are striking similarities i'm sure that they're not the same killer obviously the zodiac at the time was supposed to be in you know his 30s and this was 20 years after the phantom killer so maybe if he was 10 years old when he was committing the the phantom killings it seems unlikely seems unlikely yeah, yeah. Um, and the other is the monster of florence so this is maybe less familiar with some people but yeah i don't know uh, you don't know I, no i don't know about the monster of florence so it was he tended to target couples usually in cars, I think sometimes camping, um, but he would shoot them with a 22 Beretta and then after shooting them, used a knife to mutilate the women. Lucky us. So finally, I do have some discussion questions that I would like to get your opinion on, David. So do you think that all of the attacks were related? I do, yeah, I do. Uh, when I'm, I don't know, I, there's just something about them that that feel connected the couple connection the small town like the odds of there being multiple killers in Texarkana at the time to me feels unlikely I I think it was all one person and you know the fact that they were never caught I mean it'd be one thing if it was like there were more solid leads and more suspects but the fact that no one was ever caught just leads me to believe that it was one perpetrator so what do you think I feel the same way I feel like you know, I was reading about it and I read, you know, one thought was that maybe the Starks were killed by someone else because their attacker seemed so crazed that it was maybe unlike the attacks on the previous three couples. But in the first couple, they came out like Jimmy Hollis came out and said, like, the attacker was crazy. He talked like he was crazy. He seemed like he was just like crazed. So. So, and then the other two couples, well, they're both dead. So I don't know how much you can know about what their killer was like, but no, I think that the, the timing of it, the fact that it happened over such a short 
span of time does make me think that it's related. The MO was very similar for the first three attacks and then changed with that fourth one. And I think that that might have been a result of the fact that police were everywhere. I'm sure that there were no couples hanging out in Lover's Lane waiting to be attacked, except maybe teenagers with shotguns. (laughs) Um, So I do think that they're related. I really do wonder why the attacks stopped and I think that we can get into now my second discussion question so was Yol Swinney the phantom killer I mean the attack stopped after he was put in jail yeah I I mean to me that feels like a a, just a coincidence yeah I'm not convinced either yeah I mean it it would make like I I feel like if it were us in this town when it happened I would not feel any more safe with him put away no and I don't I don't think that people felt safe because of that i think people just started to feel more safe with time as time passed and you know he was caught in june but the texas rangers didn't leave until october captain gonzalez didn't think that yol swinney was the killer and i really don't either i do wonder why he stopped it's just he was on such a kind of fast-paced schedule i think that you think of some serial killers where they start out really slow maybe one every couple months and then you know do at some point maybe speed up to the point where they get sloppy and they get caught yeah but this was like such a precise schedule and then they just stopped so i wonder if maybe he like got hit by a car like had a heart attack or you know was arrested on an unrelated charge or had an injury had a limp got shot in the leg (laughs) And then 30 years later, yeah. went to a screening of the town that, that dreaded, dreaded sundown. sundown. I think this is a good uh, segue point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. So uh, sit tight. And uh, in a second, we're going to chat about the film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown from 1976. Jenkins, age 19, brutally attacked March 3rd, 1946. Howard W. Turner, 29. Emma Lou Cook, 17. Bodies discovered in a wooded area on March 24th. Roy Allen, 17. Peggy Loomis, 15. Both found dead April 14th in Spring Lake Park. Floyd Reed, age 34. Murdered in his home on May 3rd. Mrs. Reed shot twice, but survived. This man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 30 and 40 years old. He wore a white hood and was known only as... The Phantom Killer. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. Husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the Phantom Killer struck. For four months, he held an entire city in the icy grip of terror. Now, Charles B. Pierce brings this incredible, shocking, and true story to the screen in The Town That Dreaded Sundown, starring Academy Award winner Ben Johnson as Captain J.D. Morales of the Texas Rangers. We got a cold-blooded killer here, a man who nobody sees, a phantom who so far hasn't made any mistakes. Andrew Prine as Deputy Norman Ramsey of the Texarkana Sheriff's Department. The only thing we really do know is that we've got a very strange person on our hands. (coughs) 
the town that dreaded sundown. A true story. And we're back. So we're going to chat about the 1976 horror film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. The tagline is, in 1946, this man killed five people. Today, he still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. That's an excellent horror movie tagline voice. Oh, thank you. You have to use that for all of the ones we talk about from now on. All right, I'll I'll try that. Um, All right. So the tagline it opens with is, quote, the incredible story you're about to see is true, where it happened and how it happened. Only the names have been changed. And this is something that... Oh, we're going to get to that right away. (laughs) Never, never trust a movie that says only the names have been changed. Other stuff has been changed. I guarantee it. Other stuff has indeed been changed. Yes. And uh, if you've listened to the first half of the episode and hearing the true life murders, once you start watching the film, you'll see pretty quickly that some of those changes are apparent. You know, you just get a little bit of a different story. Um, so The Town That Dreaded Sundown, the original, uh, was directed by Charles B. Pierce, who is also known for a handful of other films, but the other horror movie that he directed was in 1972 with a Bigfoot tale called The Legend of Boggy Creek. The Legend of Big Muddy Monster? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. The regional Illinois where I'm from, Bigfoot uh, creature. And The Legend of Boggy Creek was like a huge hit. It was a played in drive-ins all around the country, and it was an independent kind of small production that ended up making $25 million. So that's a lot. That's a lot, especially Back in the early day, 70s. Yeah. yeah, a lot of money. So uh, Charles Pierce had a big success right out at the start. So by the time he got to the town that dreaded sundown, he was already making a couple of movies. The film was written by Earl E. Smith, who also worked with Pierce on Boggy Creek. And the two of them together had some... Claim to fame in the 80s as well. They both worked on the fourth Dirty Harry movie called Sudden Impact. After Charles Pierce befriended Clint Eastwood and they talked about his filmmaking talent, they partnered up on the Dirty Harry movie. And the legend has it is that Charles Pierce and Earl Smith came up with the go ahead, make my day. Like that part. Aww. So that's Which is about <laughs> all I know from the Dirty Harry movies. Well, and that's I didn't realize it. that was like the fourth movie it seems like like the first scene of his first movie would he would be saying that i thought that was just the whole movie yeah it's just him saying that over and over again yep pretty much yeah uh but that that quote (laughs) go ahead and make my day thing um charles uh, pierce has said that it was something his father used to say when he'd say like son if you go and take that car you should go ahead make my day you know like a threat like he's gonna whip him give him a what do we say in an early episode? Give him a tannin? Give him a tan- whipping? Oh, I can't remember what that was. <laughs> yeah. One of our British or Australian listeners to remind me of what I said in a previous episode. Yeah, I was like, is that is that a saying? I don't know. It was a saying, though. Just yes. not a saying here. Right. So I just want to kind of talk about the cast a little bit. There aren't a ton of people that you may recognize from other movies, but so that when we chat about the movie... It always helps me to remember characters' names by chatting about this part. So Deputy Norman Ramsey, who is played by Andrew Prine, is based off of the Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley. Interesting. I kind of feel like he was maybe a combination of Presley and Tackett. Yeah, because I, I feel could like you, see that. You hear a lot about Presley, but also Tackett kind of had that big... He seemed like he was being proactive 
in the investigation rather than just being responsive. Right. And in the in the cast, there are a lot of parallels. The only ones I really wanted to point out were Ramsey and the lone wolf captain, J.D. Morales. Who Which, played, of course, is. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, uh, he's played by Ben Johnson, and he is the lone wolf uh, Gonzalez. We have Officer A.C. Benson, who is Sparkplug. Not based on anyone real? <laughs> Not based no. on anyone real. But uh, we were talking about this earlier, about his role and how it's the comedic role. It kind of lightens yes. a lot of the... If there had been the, his character in real life, I feel like the story may not be as grueling with all the murders. <laughs> I should just inserted him in there. Yeah, so Park, Spark Plug is played by the director, Charles Pierce. What? Yep. What? You just blew my mind. I had no clue. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Cool. Uh, he's a pretty good actor also. Yeah. It's... I mean, it's a, it's a very fun character. That's so cool. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> Is that why you put it as three question marks in our notes so you could surprise me with that gem? That's exactly why. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I needed that after the first half of this episode. <laughs> awesome. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that made my day. Oh. <laughs> the Phantom is played by Bud Davis, and I couldn't find really much more about him, so it's not like he, he was really creepy in this movie. He was really creepy, like the way he breathes through that mask. Yeah. I feel like, you know, having seen a lot of horror movies and ones with kind of masked killers where, you know, they don't talk, they don't have any sort of expressions, and they just need to convey how terrifying they are with their movements and their body language he's like one of the best yeah he's really really creepy well those like foot shot of just his legs yeah the way he like walked through the woods and yeah that like breathing with the sack mask which i know in the real story for what we know of the mask which was one person who glimpsed it it was holes for the eyes and the mouth but in the movie it's just for the eyes which i think has a really cool effect of like when he's breathing heavy, it like goes, the whole thing goes out and in, in a really disconcerting way. Yeah. No, uh-huh. Good job, Bud Davis. And we were talking about this too. Like we were talking about the narrator. The narrator is an actor named Verd Stearman. And he also did the narration for The Legend of Boggy Creek. So some connections to that Bigfoot movie. I really like the use of the narrator in this. It felt very effective. I know. I don't know. Um, how much we're going to talk about. So this was 1976. So was, was it two years after Black Christmas and one year before Halloween? But it is considered a early slasher movie. Yeah. Which I think you get that feel in the scenes where it's just the Phantom and the couple that he is terrorizing and sometimes chasing. But like other than that, I feel like the way the narrator breaks it up and the way they cut to the cops... It doesn't feel very slasher-y. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And once we kind of start talking about the walking through the movie a little bit, we can we can call those out. Um, but I kind of liked it. It's having the narrator, because the narrator kind of went in, like I thought he was just going to be at the beginning, but then he hops in kind of before each of like the kills or whatever you want to call it. They feel like little like anecdotes. <laughs> they do. And it also, I don't, there's something about it, how it makes it feel a little more 40s-esque, like yeah. a, a film noir sort of narration. So it kind of pulls me back to that time Yeah, um, for a movie that was made in the mid-70s. Which we, we did end up paying the three ninety nine to rent it on, was it iTunes? Yep. And it was beautiful. 
Yeah, Scream Factory has a Blu-ray that came out about two or three years ago, um, and I, I'm guessing they pulled from that source because it looks, yeah, it looks great. It looks yeah. like a period piece almost. There's like some film grain a little bit here and there, but it looks great. So clean. The colors were great. Yeah, so definitely. I was, if you're I gonna, was not expecting it to look like that. Yeah, yeah, from the opening, from the very, very opening shot. Yeah, it just looks awesome. All right, so a lot uh, lately, I've been talking about you know the the. Uh, the murdered and the actor who has played like the dead body. But this case, the this is probably the one with the most people so far, I guess, that have been murdered, right? Or at least have been involved in uh, the antagonist's attacks. I think that's right. I'm trying to think if we've done another one with like, kind of Lake more people Bodum shown like individually. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so I just want to break it down before we start digging deeper. Uh, I'm calling this the Lover's Lane Survivors. This was March 3rd of 1946. We have Sammy Fuller, played by Mike Hackworth, who was dragged through a broken car window and beaten, and his girlfriend, Linda Mae Jenkins, played by Christine Ellsworth. She had her back, stomach, and breasts heavily bitten and chewed. We have the In the Rain murders, which was March 24th. We have Howard W. Turner, who was shot in the rain, and his girlfriend, Emma Lou Cook, played by Misty West, was tied to a tree. We have the After the High School Prom murders on April 14th, and that was Peggy Loomis, played by Cindy Butler, who was killed by her trombone, um, which we'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) And her prom date, Roy Allen, played by Steve Lyons, uh, shot and killed. We have the At Home Home Invasion murders on May 3rd. And we have Helen Reed, played by Don Wells, a.k.a. Marianne on Gilligan's Island, the big star that was in this little horror movie. The biggest star of the movie, for sure, right? Yeah. Um, She was shot in the head, and her husband, Floyd Reed, was also shot. So that's kind of the cast of uh, victims. So just a little tiny bit of trivia before we get in. So there's a swamp scene at the end of the film. And that footage was actually shot for The Legend of Boggy Creek, so... Oh, I guess that explains why they added that weird sort of ending. Yeah, so the, maybe yeah. there's Bigfoot hidden in that footage somewhere. And then, as you had mentioned earlier, just the fact that it was it's considered one of the early slasher films between Black Christmas and Halloween. So getting all that out of the way, we're going to start talking. We're going to begin the film chat. So Chelsea, what did you think of The Town That Dreaded Sundown? I really enjoyed it. I did. I thought the kind of touches like the the narrator were very charming. It was not overly gory. <laughs> I think that kind of combining the murders with really the active storyline that you're following, which is the police investigation, helped to offset that. And yeah, I thought The Phantom was really scary. I thought it was a scary movie <laughs> uh, for sure. I thought that they, you know, it, it did sensationalize the original case, which I think when you think about movies that are based on true stories, that is one of the things that can kind of not sit right with me. But, you know, I didn't feel like it was maybe disrespectful or damaging the way that some other previous movies that I've gotten mad at, like, Amityville Horror and Emily Rose. Like, they didn't, even though he's the phantom killer, he's clearly not supernatural. Yeah. Um, And it did, in a way, kind of follow the the true story. And it was kind of true to the true story. I wasn't sure how how true it was going to be. After that first scene, I thought that those first two victims were going to be killed. And I was like, oh, it's it's not going to be following the actual murders. But... You know, they survived, and I think that 
you know, that feeling is probably true to what actually happened. The attack on them was very vicious and you should think that they're not going to survive before they do. And it was the same thing with the attack on Helen Reed, AKA Katie Starks. You should question whether these people are going to survive and then be happy when they do. So yeah, no, I, I liked it very much. What did you think, David? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, this was a, a really great movie. I was struck by how amazing the print looked on the version that we watched. And I just thought for kind of a lower budget movie from the mid 70s, maybe it would be a little bit more grimy, but it's it's shot with like such a steady hand and, and a lot of clarity, despite the fact that it doesn't have a ton of people that I recognize from any other movie. I think a lot of the times those films can feel a little dated. Whereas this, it does an interesting thing with the narration where it almost jumps in and out of like a documentary style. I think the way a lot of the police chase scenes play out feel that way. I don't know how you'd have a camera that would have captured all of that in real life, but it does have like a little bit of a sense of reality to it. And I think that the, just the development of the case and how they bring in the police and how they bring in the lone wolf and all of that, it, it just really stacks up and has a satisfying ending in a way. Well, it doesn't have a satisfying <laughs> ending. It, it ends on like a, a cliffhanger, but I like that it did. Well, I will just say I, I like that it didn't have the typical like slasher unmasked ending um, and whatever. Or the like slasher strikes again ending, which I mean, I, I don't know if we want to talk about it now, but. It does kind of come full circle, but I think I think it had a better ending than the 2014 sequel, if you want to call it a sequel. I think Wikipedia calls it a meta sequel. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I keep seeing that. Yeah. Of as a um, but maybe we should get into the summary before we go talk a little bit about comparisons. We're not going to focus on the 2014 sequel because it has been a while since we've seen it, but we did both watch it and enjoy it also and that one's streaming free on amazon prime so well i mean amazon you're, prime you're lucky yeah you're you paid for it but it doesn't feel like it <laughs> no, no it doesn't feel like it <laughs> if it doesn't feel like it it's free yeah exactly all right so just, let's just jump in i know i kind of broke down the murders themselves but we do start off with that lover's lane kill or not kill. <laughs> I'm, I'm yes. ready to already be like, yeah, yeah they both died. Yeah. And I, I expected going See, in like that they were going to die having not known the facts of the true case. Yeah. But that was my expectation. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of surprising that they both live, but it, it is true. So this first attack is you know, the correlates to the attack on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry. So it's the couple is parked on lover lane. You see them leaving the movie and they drive, they go to Lover's Lane, you know, he's being a little flirty and she's being a little like, no, you have to take me home. And then the killer comes. It looks to me, I guess he like lifted the hood of their car and maybe like grabbed some wires and pulled them or something so that they couldn't drive away and then closes the hood of the car. So it's kind of like, I've seen like a, a gif of it online where it's like the hood goes down and it's zooms in on the killer's face where like you could just see his eyes in the the mask and yeah he attacks them so as you said he pulls the the boy through the window and beats him and um the girl you don't see it happen but later find out that she was you know, sexually assaulted so this is kind of true to the real story i don't know how much we as the public know you know it has come out that 
the first victim was sexually assaulted with the gun. But as Gonzalez said in his interview, it seems like there are more details that are held from the press. But it seems like in the movie they go with um, biting is his like weird sex maniac thing. So yeah, he like bit and chewed her, which ugh. <laughs> yeah, that's just awful. yes. But they both survive. They yeah, they both survive, and they kind of give you a follow up to like how they're doing. They were question. I mean, yeah. then we f- we go full on like investigative yeah. detective work. I you know I enjoyed that. I didn't expect those portions of the movie to be as kind of light, I guess, as they are. But I liked it. I mean, it had a nice, it had a good balance. Yeah, they go very heavy on uh, on spark plug straight from the get go, which now makes a lot more sense when I found out that the actor is actually the director. He can go as heavy on spark plug as his little heart desires since yeah. it's his movie. But you see spark plug like berating some old lady. <laughs> on the phone and you know being scolded but very quickly you have the character of deputy norman ramsey being kind of the standout officer so you know he is expecting there to be another attack where other people aren't and he for some reason that i think is maybe a little suspicious you know at the three-week mark is like i just have a feeling after three weeks, even though three weeks is kind of a meaningless measurement of time at this point. But he goes out patrolling and for the second killing, he actually hears the gunshots. So he it was just driving around, you know, patrolling Lover's Lanes because that's where the first one happened. And he pulls his car over and he hears gunshots. So which he- I thought was going to be a fake out. I thought it yeah. was not going to be a murder, which kind of is good because like disarmed me to when yeah. he does find that that Howard has been killed and then his discovery, you're going, Oh, okay. Well, if he's been killed, then Emma is probably dead too. Yes. And yes. Sure enough. She so is. You, you had seen that couple leaving earlier before it cut back to Ramsey. Um, but yeah, he, he comes across both of their bodies and she has some really gross bite marks. On bite her. marks. Oh, and he actually almost like he kind of sees, I don't know if he actually saw the phantom, but he saw the phantom driving away. So we see him kind of trudging through this marsh and it cuts to the phantom getting in his car. And then you see the car driving away and Ramsey kind of comes out of the woods and points his gun at the car and then realizes that it's too far away. So close. So So close. Yeah. Yeah. Which is nothing like the real story. (laughs) Right. So I think it's after this killing that our Gonzalez comes or Morales comes. He's a very larger than life character which seems true to the real story he's got a nice mustache and one of them uh cowboy hats what are they called like 10 gallon hats yeah pistols with ivory handles which is true to the the real story he's like a real texas ranger this guy it's uh i like his character i don't know how much he actually contributed to the investigation but i guess i feel kind of similarly with the real life gonzalez i feel like a lot of the more behind the scenes folks, people like Officer Tackett were the ones that were really doing the legwork, whereas he was more of like a mouthpiece. Oh, yeah. No, I, that's exactly yeah what yeah. I was thinking. It's like he's the one that's the voice to the public and the voice of, I guess, ass- quiet assuredness or whatever. <laughs> I think he's like the opposite of quiet assuredness. He's well, like telling people to get their double barrel shotgun and lock their doors. Well, well in yeah. real life. Yeah, yeah, in real life. Yeah. But yeah. in the movie, I guess they kind of he's a little more... Um, stately no so three weeks later they are patrolling in the movie they are aware of this dance happening 
Ramsey even tells officers to go down and patrol the parking lot around when the dance is wrapping up, which they said is 1 a.m., which is true, the real story. And they unfortunately don't manage to save the next couple. So this was in the movie, um, Peggy Loomis and Roy Allen. And in the real story, this uh, these are the young teens. This is Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker. So in the movie, they are an actual couple. Whereas they weren't in real life. Uh, I did read some sources that claimed that they were a couple. No, they weren't. (laughs) But this is probably one of the more famous kills in the movie, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The trombone kill. (laughs) And I guess so, since he's biting women, he didn't bother to lift his mask up to make the trombone sounds as he's stabbing her with it i was so disappointed at the lack of trombone sounds there needed to be like a yeah yeah but instead it's just like (laughs) (laughs) it was yeah it's just weird gross stabbing sounds yeah they didn't show any like weird biting things but i do feel like it still kind of felt sexual in a weird way It was like the slow stabbing yeah i don't know I think I kind of had my hopes up of like, ha ha, this is going to be so funny. And instead I was like, oh God, I feel weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause um, I think in the 2014 version, it's more like iconic and cinematic. Cause it's, I thought it was like a dude that was also killed with a trombone. Yeah. In the 2014 yeah. One. Wasn't it like one of the guys in like the junkyard or something weird. Yeah. If I, I, I don't think know, so. I might just have made that up. And that totally makes the like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that is the infamous trombone kill. I'm glad to have finally watched it. I wish that there was sounds. If anyone knows of a YouTube video where they added sound effects and maybe made it a little bit funny, <laughs> that's that's the version I would like to watch. He's oh. like womp womp womp. Or it's like Okay. So if I'm recalling correctly, this is the murder that kind of sets the town into the frenzy where you see things. It's like a kind of a montage scene of exactly what happened in real life. People buying guns, people you know, calling the police over little tiny noises like cats in their outside garbage can. and Oh, pretty white kitty. <laughs> yeah, a little, little fluffy white kitty. Who is safe does not die. Yeah, the cat does not die. Yay. But... And finally, they get to the last kill. So this is Virgil and Katie in real life. And in the movie, it's... Helen and Floyd. And this is like when you're talking about what happened in real life. Like he, I mean, he comes through the screen door and it's terrifying in the movie. Yes. Yes. And he's making that like weird... I hate a song like that. That was a bad impression. But um, yeah, it was really scary. Uh, It felt incredibly true to the real story except maybe well there's a chase scene afterwards that i don't you know that that did not happen in real life but the attack in the house it was two shots through the window into the husband who was sitting in the chair who died immediately and you do see helen reed get shot twice in you know once in the cheek and once in the jaw just like in the real story yeah she's trying to call police i feel like in real life it was probably much grosser and bloodier you see like a little trail of blood that the phantom is following out of the house when he finally gets in but the detectives on scene like i'm not the one who said river they're the ones who said river and teeth which 
Yeah, and this yeah. felt, I mean, in the film, it, it does feel like a slasher movie. Like a slasher oh, movie yeah. scene or whatever, a kill. Um, I mean, they go through a gosh darn cornfield. It's hard to get more horror movie than that. Yeah, bag-headed killer chasing down a lady in peril through a cornfield. Is there a cornfield in that Jason movie? Uh, There's a cornfield in Freddy vs. Jason, the rave scene. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But he's just more bag in that. No, no, no. He's like full on hockey mask Jason in that one. All right. So that was the f- those was the final one. Yes, that was the final kill. They do have a pretty obvious reference to Yol Swinney. Um, they you know chase down a car thief and turns out to not be the fa- it's he's very obviously not the phantom killer in this. Whereas in real life, I think it's maybe a little more up for debate. But you know he's not the phantom killer in this because they have their weird ending. Why don't you <laughs> summarize the ending? Yes, yeah, like they, they happen upon, a I guess it's a quarry or a, something like that, it right? It starts it's with like the, a gravel pit. the car that Ramsey recognizes because he had seen it at that first the first attack scene. Yeah. And it's like him and Morales right. go when they get the call about this car and... Uh, you go. Wait, they chase it down. They chase me down to the the. Well, they get. <laughs> Wait, what happens again? <laughs> Sorry. I I don't know why I blanked on oh. this portion of it. So they they get to the car and you know they're told that there's a spot where lovers will park, just through the woods past where the car is. So they think, oh, the phantom killer's out here trying to get someone. So they go through the woods and they get to essentially it looks like maybe some kind of like sand pit. Yeah, and then they they see him. They I see mean, they him. see him in broad daylight. It's like, gosh darn Lion King. He's like up on this little precipice, just staring out into the sunlight, wearing his bag mask. Yeah, and the two cops kind of pull a, an Empire Strikes Back uh, probe droid thing where it's like one's Han and one's Chewie. And he's like <laughs> pops up over her head and he's like, <laughs> and then like Han Solo shoots him and he blows up, but he doesn't quite shoot him. He misses. Yep. And uh, then there's like a chase scene. Yes. And I thought this was really fun because they're like kind of chasing through the woods and one just like, I don't know why, but it's like this train. It's like this train. It looks like a steam engine. I know it's a regular yeah. train, but it's like a train. And I kind of like this trope though in movies where it's like <laughs> bad guys on one side, good guys on the other. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, the Phantom Killer just makes it in front of the train onto the other side. And then it's kind of a, they can see him. He can see them, and they're shooting. I mean, they're shooting nonstop at this train, trying to get him. Yeah. And uh, towards the end of the train, they, like, shoot him. They get him. They, like, shoot yeah. him in the leg a couple times. Yeah. And he starts to go down, and then right when the train passes, he kind of, like, hobbles away through the swamp, I guess. Yep. And there's, like, a couple of moments where it seems like they could maybe catch him. But they bring bloodhounds. Yeah. They, they send a ton of bloodhounds after him, but then the narrator pops in and says a bit about how the sense, you know, since getting lost in the swamp and the trail going cold, yeah. just because there's just so much going on. And they're like, did he die in the swamp? Did he, was he eaten by it? Or, you know, did he get away? And then we cut to the present day of the when the movie was made, 1976, and it's a screening of The Town That Dread Sundown, and there's a huge line. But as we mentioned earlier, all of these shots of the Phantom Killer's lower half, like his legs and his shoes, we see 
these familiar feet and he's limping along in line to see his own goddamn movie yep very meta a good setup for the meta sequel (laughs) the (laughs) meta i feel like we should talk about just very briefly yeah so it's ryan murphy produced who did who is is the showrunner i guess for american horror story which comes up a a lot of our episodes a previous episode covered coven a bit but it's very slickly produced it's I guess the meta aspect of it is in that it recognizes that the film happened. Yeah, well, there's even, it's like Charles B. Pierce's son is like a, a character in it. Yeah. Um, but I guess they're kind of treating the murder, like the m- movie as though it was kind of more true to the real events. And the killer ended up being like, I think the son of like the sixth victim of the phantom who was like ignored in the movie plus also her boyfriend who you wait this is i should have said (laughs) spoiler alert (laughs) oh i'm so sorry spoilers abound sorry people but yeah spoilers abound it was like scream-esque where there are two killers and one is the boyfriend that you think is dead it felt very influenced by the kind of like the the slashers that were big when I was younger and I liked it a lot. I really enjoyed it. I'm not the biggest slasher fan and I still really enjoyed it. So I make it a double feature. (laughs) Yeah. Check it out because hopefully we've sold you on these movies. They're great. It's October. Fill your queue with horror movies. Do a double feature with this, the 76 one and the meta sequel. Yeah. Or you could do the original town that dreaded sundown and Friday 13th part two. Oh, a baghead, uh, bag, baghead mask, killer. Mas- bag mask <laughs> connection. Yeah. You could do the 2014 Town That Dreaded Sundown and Scream. I think that would be a great double feature. Yeah. Oh, that'd be a fun one. Yeah. yeah. You could see it. So yeah, mix or match, but highly recommend checking this one out. This was a lot of fun. You rent it um, on iTunes or get the Blu-ray or whatever, and it, it looks beautiful. It, yeah. I and was very just impressed. Just be prepared for kind of a comedic character uh, <laughs> in spark plug but yeah. remember he's the director so it makes it so much better it makes me want to go watch it again yeah uh, well and now itunes has 48 hour rentals so what it was before, so. oh so you're saying we could go downstairs and watch it again right yeah now. but we're gonna go watch hocus pocus so yeah i'm gonna go eat dinner i'm starving <laughs> yeah me too so that is the original the town that dreaded sundown from 1976 directed by charles b pierce and the connection to the Phantom Killer. So thanks for sticking with us for this case. However, before we end, I just wanted to ask Chelsea, what's your now playing? I'm going to have to go with HGTV's Love It or List It series. So our... Uh, you serial murdered that series. Oh, <laughs> I, I serial murdered that series. I watched a lot of it. Our vacation was so much fun, but Monday was kind of rough. It was... Waking up to the news of the shooting in Vegas was really heartbreaking. And later on that same day, finding out about Tom Petty. Anyway, we spent like at least five hours of the day laying in bed in our hotel room watching HGTV's Love It or List It. And I have no regrets. Me too. There was fun. Yeah. What's your now playing, David? My now playing is Blade Runner. Oh, we did watch that recently. We did. Uh, so I bet I could guess what your coming soon is. No. Oh, you have a different one? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we watched Blade Runner. It's um, one of my favorite movies. One of, one of, in my opinion, one of the best sci-fi movies. Long history with that film. 
anyway, uh, yeah, that's my not playing. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you have for coming soon? I was going to go with The House is October Built. So Ooh. I'm very pumped up now for Halloween. Now that we're back from our vacation, I am ready to watch only Halloween movies and decorate and eat pumpkin flavored everything. And the houses that October built have been on our list for a while. We haven't watched it. I know the sequel just came out recently. I had wanted to watch it last year, but I don't want to watch it by myself. So <laughs> I had to wait a whole year to watch it. And I'm really excited to uh, get that checked off of our list this month. What is your coming soon? My coming soon is Happy Death Day. Oh, yeah. I'm just gonna, really excited about it. I was going to say it. that's going to be good, but I should maybe say I hope that's going to be good. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. It seems so fun and right down my alley. So um, maybe we'll chat about it in a future episode. Yes, I am very pumped for it. I'm quite a fan of that trope. Um, so it's Groundhog Day meets some kind of slasher movie but it also reminds me a lot of the um is it the mystery spot episode of supernatural where uh every time it's like the trickster and every time dean dies in a weird way and then sam wakes up again and it's the same it's like one of my all-time favorite episodes it's really funny natural yeah which i just love oh my god that was from 2008 i just looked it up <laughs> wow almost 10 years ago but yeah man first five seasons of supernatural perfect television yeah i'm glad you (laughs) recommended that i keep it self-contained and watch just those first five so yes yeah Yeah, i just gently recommended that you watch it as i sat you down and forced you to watch it with me (laughs) yeah it was a great show r.a.p supernatural five seasons Five seasons. Yeah. I wonder um, what those boys are doing now. Oh. Jeffrey Dean Morgan said he wants to come back. He just That's said probably that. the only way that I would start watching that show again. Yeah. So <laughs> let's wrap this up. We haven't eaten dinner. It's 9 p.m. We haven't eaten dinner. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We love you all. We um, really encourage, if you have not, to visit Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and uh, give us a rating. Yes. Please give us a rating. Uh, it they make me so happy. Don't you want to make me happy? <laughs> of course. <Yeah. laughs> and uh, if you want to check us out on social media, as always, we are active on Instagram at Based on a True Crime, Twitter True Crime Based, Facebook Based on a True Crime Podcast, and our website Based on a True Crime dot com. Yes, you could also reach us by email, um, Based on a True Crime at gmail dot com, or you could fill out the contact us form on our website. I have gotten a few really nice messages. I do try to reply to everything. It could be a a bit overwhelming sometimes if I ever missed something from anyone and didn't respond. Just send me another message because I I really do appreciate it so much when you guys reach out. Um, So just remember, death is but a door. And time is but a window. (laughs) We'll be back.